Take your Bibles, if you would, and head on over to the book of Romans. Once again, Romans chapter 15. And this morning we want to look at verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. I'm not sure about you, but it seems that hope is in short supply in our culture. I think, though, that that is largely because our hope is not too big in the fact that we are hoping for too much, but our hope is too little. I think when we look at hope, our hope is connected to our situation and our circumstances. We hope that we get out of whatever this is soon. We hope that things change. We hope that we can get back to normal. We hope that we can travel and any number of things that we may look forward to. Perhaps as myself and others were looking forward with some degree of hope to September the 12th, which was the original date of the moving forward plan stage five, when we could be back together again and not divided into the 9 a.m. church service, the 11 a.m. church service, and be one family of God yet again. And yet, as we know, that date has come and gone, and we are perhaps further behind in some ways than we were when that moving forward plan was submitted. And so if our hope is in a change of our circumstances, if our hope is based on God working out a situation in the way that we think it should be worked out, in the timing that we think it should be worked out in, if our hope is that family and friends believe the same way we do about everything that we believe, if our hope is that we can change someone's mind in order to think more like us, and be more like us, that our hope is far too little and definitely misplaced. But if our hope is that despite our sinfulness, our rebellion, and our failings, despite our unbelief and our doubts, there is a graciously sovereign, almighty God, Lord of lords and King of kings over all the universe, who can and is transforming our hearts and lives and can transform the hearts and lives of those that we know, not to be more like us, God forbid, but to be more like him, then we have hope. Our hope is not in isms and ideologies. Our hope is in a person, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so Paul, as we know, is writing to a collection of Christians who are deeply divided, perhaps even more deeply divided than we are right now at this point in our history, although that would be hard to imagine, perhaps. There were certainly tribes, and the most notable tribes in the churches at Rome, or the church at Rome, were those that were Jewish and those that were not. And these two groups of people did not interact well with one another, had not for millennia. And so, as we know, the Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. They were only recently been allowed back in, so you now have a predominantly Gentile church 
facing an influx of Jewish individuals back into the fold. And what does that look like and how do we work that out? And Paul has been reminding them this whole letter of the gospel, something he's going to turn our attention to again this morning, and has spent all of chapter 14 and thus far in chapter 15 answering that question. This is what it looks like. Focus on the essentials. Focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ the righteous. And do not get bogged down by the non-essentials, so that although you are neither uniform nor unanimous, you can be united around Jesus Christ the righteous. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of God. We want to start then this morning in verse 7 with a little bit of a recap. Verse 7 is kind of the pivot point in the teeter-totter, so to speak, between verses 1 through 6 and 8 through 13. It's difficult to figure out, does it come at the end of verses 1 through 6 and wrap up that section, or does it introduce 8 through 13? I think we made the right call, and our brother Luke brought us through verses 1 through 7 ably last Sunday. And I do rightly believe that it ends off verses 1 through 6 rather than begin a new uh, thought in verses 8 through 13. But it is kind of like the pivot point on a seesaw or teeter-totter where it, it's in the middle there. And I believe it has direct applicability to what Paul's going to say in verses 8 through 13. So let's remind ourselves then of what verse 7 says. Notice it says, welcome one another, verse 7a. That has been in short supply amongst Christians during this pandemic, at least publicly. Certainly there are many Christians who are acting like Christ, and oftentimes they're the ones that we don't hear about. But the public perception of Christianity has largely been an unwelcoming crowd. That not only are non-believers not welcome, but those that do not share political affiliation or ideology with a certain brand of Christians in Christendom are not welcome either. There's a lot of complaining, a lot of prickles and barbs, a lot of insults and civil war, so to speak, amongst Christianity. And yet Paul says that our posture ought to be, as we have discovered from chapter 14 and the first part of 15, one of welcome. As we live out the gospel, do people feel welcomed by us? 
Is Grace Baptist Church a place where you can share divergent opinions on non-essentials and still know that you are loved? Is Grace Baptist Church a family where there are multiple opinions, preferences, perspectives on a multiple realities of issues, and yet there is unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ? where we support one another and love one another, even and especially when we disagree with one another. Is that us? And what does Paul base that on? Welcome one another, he says, as Christ welcomed you. We are so unworthy of God's welcoming of us. We do not deserve to be called sons and daughters of God. And it's almost as if Paul wants to ask us, have you forgotten who you used to be? Have you forgotten who in many ways you still are? And have you forgotten God's posture towards you? That God welcomes you despite your sinfulness, despite your rebellion, despite your failures. His posture, his heart towards you is one of love, one of grace and mercy. And in Christ we are welcomed. Paul remembers who he was. He knows that he used to be zealous against followers of Jesus Christ, attempting to imprison or even execute them, and Jesus Christ met him and showed the same mercy and grace to Paul that he's shown to anyone who names his name here this morning, here or watching online. And Paul was never the same. How long has it been since you thanked God for all that he has done for you in Jesus Christ? Really? Not just ages ago, I prayed a prayer, thanks God, and I've been doing great ever since. No, 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 when's the last time You took full stock of who you are, who you know you are, and I am the worst sinner I know, and you are the worst sinner you know, and you've been grateful and just bathed in the mercy and grace of God. Welcome one another, he says, as Christ welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. What is all of this argumentation really in aid of? Whose glory are we seeking when we attempt to force someone to see things our way? Whose glory are we seeking when we attempt to berate someone, to online argue with someone or offline argue with someone, to attempt to force them to change their perspective and opinion on non-essentials? Whose glory is that for? What a sad commentary that we are sinning in at least two ways when we do that. We are sinning in that we are attempting to be God instead of worshiping God. And we are sinning in that we are displaying a God to that person in that moment who is not the one true God. We are not accurately reflecting the God of glory. We are attempting to be God and also portray a God 
who is judgmental, who is short-tempered, who is petty, who is petulant, who is easily angered and not easily entreated. We are displaying a God who is not neither patient nor kind, but a God who is demanding and demanding that you cross all of the uh, T's and dot all of the I's in this way, or else you will not be welcome. That is not our God, and you and I are not God. So we are neither accurately reflecting God and his actual character, but worse, we're attempting to be him and a caricature of who he actually is. Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for God's glory, not our own. Now we turn to the passage before us and notice the mercy of God through Christ. Oh, the mercy of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. There is nothing like this anywhere else. None of the isms, ideologies, and major world belief systems and religions are this. Every other belief system, every other worldview has as its core man attempting to become like God. Only Christianity says that it is a point of fact that God became one of us. We don't do this. We don't condescend to people that we perceive to be less than us. At least we don't do it unless other people are watching. We are all about ourselves. We don't do this. And it's hard for us to fathom a God who would. And yet the God of the universe, the one true God, He it is that stepped into human form, left His glory, and stepped into human form to become one of us. And Grace Baptist Church, Jesus Christ the righteous, as I am preaching this right now, is still one of us. And when we see him one day, those of us that have repented of our sins and have faith in him, he will be one of us for the rest of eternity. He loves us that much. That's the message of Christianity, that God condescended to become one of us to redeem us. Christ came as a servant. Notice to the Jew first, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Jesus is Jewish. And those that he came to, he came to as Jews. He tells his disciples early on in his ministry, go to the last sheep of the house of Israel. This is their Messiah. This is the Messiah promised to the nation of Israel throughout their history. Deuteronomy 18, a servant, a prophet like Moses. 1 Samuel 7 and, 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 and following, where there is one who will sit on the throne of David forever. These passages upon passages promising a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. And so he is addressing as a Jew, the Jews in the audience that are reading this letter, Jesus is your Messiah. But notice where he goes in verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
Jesus is not just the Lord and Savior, the Messiah of the Jews. He is the Lord and Savior of all who repent and put their faith and trust in him. To the Jew first, as Paul has said previous in this letter, but also to the Greek. And so, what those reading this letter should realize is that we may come to the cross and do come to the cross from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ideologies, different isms, different ways of thinking, different political uh, affiliations. But when we come to the cross, we come as sinners in desperate need of a Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is that, and we depart from the cross equals. There is neither bond nor free, Paul will say. There is neither Jew nor Greek in the church of God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. We are all equals at the cross. So to the Jews, Paul says, do not believe that you have a leg up on the Gentiles, that you are first-class church citizens and the Gentiles are second-class citizens. Do not believe that although you may be in the minority, that somehow you are superior. That is not the case. You are recipients of God's grace and mercy and only God's grace and mercy. We are currently in the book of Ezekiel, one of our passages in our Bible reading plan, and it's a hard read because almost every chapter in Ezekiel, God is telling his nation Israel, you have sinned, you have failed. And the trembling that must have come over Ezekiel when he was taken from across the Euphrates, from the Chaldeans, in the spirit back to Jerusalem and he sees the Shekinah glory of God leave the temple for the first time since it had arrived. God's glory is leaving. My people have sinned. God's judgment is equal opportunity. And no one, regardless of their ethnicity or their political affiliation or ideology, cannot be subject to the judgment of God if they are wicked. But thanks be to God that always in those passages, God comes back and says, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. I am not done with my people. I have not abandoned my people that I will one day bring them back. God's mercy to the Jew. And yet his mercy to the Gentile. Gentiles, you are in the majority in the church. But do not act in the spirit of Claudius and others looking down on Jews, despising the Jews, looking down your noses at them as their second-class citizens. There is a deep divide between Jew and non-Jew, and Paul says the only way to bridge that gap is the gospel. The only hope we have is the gospel. That in the face of this diversity, it is not that we need diversity training we do not need to watch a video series on diversity. We do not need isms and ideologies and to try harder and to work better. No, what we need is transformation. And the only way that happens is from the inside out through the power of God by Jesus Christ through his spirit. That is the only transforming power. That's the only hope we have to bring Jews and Gentiles together and to bring us together at this time when all Satan wants to do is to drive us apart. Division is rampant and Satan is laughing. And what we need is the unity that we looked at last week in diversity that we see this week. And the only hope we have of any of that is Jesus Christ. 
Notice God's beautiful plan of salvation, the end of verse 9 all the way through verse 12. Paul quotes at least four passages of Scripture, some from the Psalms, one from Deuteronomy, one potentially from 1 Samuel, and another from Isaiah. And using the Torah, the Pentateuch, the historical books, the prophets, and the writings, the Kethuvim, from all three major parts of the Old Testament, Paul proves his point that God's plan was always not just for the Jew, but also for the Greek. I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles and all the people who extol him. We read that to begin our service this morning. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles will hope. God's plan of salvation always included everyone. While he was working specifically with his nation Israel, he was never working exclusively with his nation Israel. And notice even the ministry of Jesus Christ. He goes as a Jew to Jews, and yet who does he repeatedly and consistently encounter? Gentiles. And what does he say? I have not seen such faith, not even in the house of Israel. The Syrophoenician woman, the centurion, these and so many others that are outside of the people of God, but are brought into the people of God, because God's plan always included the Gentiles. For anyone that would exclude anyone else from the mercy and grace of God, that is not the good news. I'm reminded of a time or at least twice in the scriptures where Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets angry more than just the cleansing of the temple. John 8 is probably another one. There's other places where we see God's son burning with righteous indignation against sin. But we certainly see on two separate occasions he cleanses the temple. What is happening Herod the Great had rebuilt the Temple Mount, and the temple was gorgeous. And there were three courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, then there was the court of the women, and then there was the temple proper. And in that court of the Gentiles, up on the Temple Mount, the Jews had such disregard for Gentiles, they had set up a market in which to buy and sell, primarily sell, sacrifices for Jewish proselytes and Jewish pilgrims traveling to the city from other parts, as well as to exchange any money from different parts of the Roman um, uh, Empire for the, the temple tax, the Jewish money. Jesus's issue is not that there is a marketplace happening in which there are illegitimate transactions taking place. That certainly does bother God, And he talks about unjust balances and weights repeatedly through the Old Testament. But that is not the main concern that Jesus has in that moment. It is also not his concern that there's there's commerce being conducted in the building. What is Jesus' main concern? The Jews have precluded the Gentiles from the one place where they can meet his father. And nobody keeps anybody from seeing Jesus' Father. Jesus wants all to be able to come to Him, all to have access to His Father. And the Jews have such low regard, such disregard for the Gentiles, that they're turning the one place of worship that the Gentiles have into a marketplace. Jesus says, come. And we'll see that in our benediction this morning. Notice then verse 13, God is a God of hope. God is certainly a God of hope during COVID-19, 
But our main issue is not a virus. Our main issue is our sinfulness. And so the hope that God brings and the hope that Paul points us to is much larger than our current situation. Notice, all have hope in him, the back half of verse 12. In him will the Gentiles hope. Not just the Jews who are hoping for a Messiah. The Gentiles will also hope in him. God's salvation, God's transforming power is available to all, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of any other divisions that we might divide people up into. The message of the gospel, the good news, is that there is hope for all. No one is too sinful. No one is to be cast out or rejected. All who come in repentance and faith will find grace and mercy in God the Father, through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 13a, may the God of hope. God is hope. Not, again, just that he is a genie, that we rub his lamp and out he comes to grant us our infinite wishes, but that he is the only hope we have of becoming more like he has made us to be. He has created us to reflect Him. And that reflection of His character is kindness and patience, something we're even hearing from from governmental officials. Goodness and grace, self-control, temperance, integrity, nobility, respect, love, truth, mercy, grace, holiness, righteousness. These are the things and much more that our God is. And He created us to be that and we are not cannot be and do not want to be, so he has remade us through Jesus Christ to be that. That is where our hope lies. We can't even change ourselves. Why do we spend so much time trying to change somebody else? There is only hope in one, and that is the God of glory, because only he can break through our unbelief and our doubt, our sinfulness and our rebellion, our failures, and only he can make us who he made us to be and is remaking us to be in Christ by the Spirit. Notice that he is all-powerful. Fill you, give you all you need, provide you with the fullness of the riches of him, with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the only place where there is power. There are not power in isms and ideologies, programs and these sorts of things. The only power is in God. He is the all-powerful one, and he can give us all that we need to provide us with joy and peace in believing by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that regardless of our circumstances, we are not shaken or moved, but we are filled with hope, not hope necessarily that our circumstances will change, they may not, but hope that regardless of our circumstances, there is one who loves us who died to give us life and will bring us all the way home, which is our last point. God will bring us all the way home that you may abound in hope. We ought to know that this is not all there is. What is coming is so much more glorious than we can possibly even fathom. That is our hope. A world in which humanity reaches its full potential and is an accurate reflection of the image of God in them. 
accurately showing who God is and we're interacting with each other in that way. That's what's coming. So we're to pin our hope on an ideology, to pin our hope on an ism, to pin our hope on someone else or to pin our hope on ourselves is foolish. But to ha- stand firm in the hope that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That gives us hope. That God has transformed us and is transforming us and will one day fully transform us. Romans 8, that we are justified, we are being sanctified, and one day will be glorified. That is where our hope lies. God, the righteous, will make of us what he intended us to be by his glory, by his power, by his grace, so that we will accurately reflect him. That is the only hope for humanity. That is the only hope for us. And so in the midst of all of this division, in the midst of all of this diversity, may we be reminded of the hope, and that hope is in the gospel. We are great sinners, but there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness and goodness to us. We are so undeserving of your love. And yet as recipients of it, Father, we rejoice that we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we stand in your presence as righteous as Jesus Christ because his righteousness is ours and the penalty for our sin is his. Father, we have hope, hope of life eternal because Jesus Christ the righteous died, was buried and rose again the third day back to life from the dead. And his resurrection gives us hope of ours. And his righteousness gives us hope that we also can be righteous. Whatever that besetting sin is in our lives, Father, there is hope because you have power to change. You have power to transform us. The division and the strife and the frustration and the anxiety and the anger and the angst and all of these things in our culture and our society, there is hope because you can change a human heart. Only you can do this, Father. Only you can do, can do what Paul is, is, is confident that is happening in Rome. That here we have a, two groups of people that could not be more divided. They would not even eat in each other's homes. And yet, Father, you are making of two people one in Christ. May we focus on the essentials and not get bogged down in the non-essentials. May we honor and glorify you and not ourselves. May we accurately reflect who you are and not a perverted view of who you are based on our pride and selfishness and sin. Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.